0: You're listening to the Inbound Logistics Podcast with today's guest, Professor Farzad Mahmoodi of Clarkson University. The lasting impact of the global pandemic continues to reverberate throughout the industry. Companies face daily challenges to their supply chain efficiencies and are often forced to adapt quickly to try and enact effective mitigation strategies. With few signs of an immediate return to pre-pandemic normality, how do businesses best position themselves for success? Professor Farzad Mamoudi of Clarkson University joins us for a quick lesson on supply chain management. Joining me today on the Inbound Logistics Podcast is Professor Farzad Mahmoudi, Goldshine Endowed Chair Professor in Supply Chain Management and Director of Clarkson University's Global Supply Chain Management Program. Professor Mahmoudi, thank you so much for joining the show today.
1: Thank you very much
0: for having me. It's great to have you. Uh, It's an interesting topic that we're going to be talking about today, given everything that's gone on for the last two years. So I'm interested to hear your take. But before we get into that, I would like you to introduce yourself to our audience, if you could, and take us through a little bit about your background in the industry uh, and and a little bit about uh, what brought you to Clarkson in the first place.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, My educational background is in Industrial Engineering, I received the PhD at University of Minnesota a long time ago, 1989. Clarkson was my first job. So I've, uh, I've been at Clarkson for more than 30 years and I've been a faculty member uh, teaching, researching, uh, basically consulting and conducting executive education. Seminars at Clarkson, uh, since uh, 1989. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, currently I hold the Goldshine Endowed Chair in Supply Chain Management, and also I run our uh, nationally ranked Global Supply Chain Management Program at Clarkson. Uh, my current research interests are in supply chain design and management. Uh, my research work, which is around a hundred articles or pieces, have been published in numerous uh, national and international journals and edited books. I have also performed consulting projects for a variety of Fortune 500, midsize, and small firms. Uh, I've always worked uh, closely with industry practitioners. Uh, Many of them uh, former students or executives who serve on our school's leadership council or university's board of trustees. Uh, Finally, I have been involved in executive education for about 30 years, uh, primarily in US, Canada, and France. Uh, including serving as the director of the Supply Chain Management Executive Seminars at Clarkson that has been attended by several hundred supply chain professionals uh, from about 90 companies, including some uh, 30 Fortune 500 companies. Clarkson, for those of you who, who may not be familiar With it is a private national research university and a leader in what we call technological education. Uh, We tend to promote the entrepreneurial mindset to innovate solutions and cultivate the leaders of tomorrow. Uh, Our main campus is located in Potsdam, New York, that's upstate in, you know, New York state. Uh, And we have additional graduate programs and research facilities uh, in the capital region of New York. So Schenectady specifically, also Beacon, New York, and New York City. Uh, We educate about uh, 4,300 students across 95 programs, um, mostly focusing on engineering, business, uh, sciences, uh, and health sciences. Uh, And one of the things that stands out about Clarkson is we place extremely well, our alumni have done extremely well, Uh, our alumni earn salaries that are among the top 2% in the nation, and they have realized accelerated career growth. Uh, and I'm also proud to mention that one in five of our alums lead as a CEO, senior executive,
0: or, or owner of a company. Excellent! Sounds like a great program to to be a part of. Uh, and uh, speaking of which, uh, those solutions are are, are uh, what the industry is really looking for right now, given uh, all the challenges that the uh, the global supply chains are, are facing. Uh, really for the last two years or so. So uh, Professor, I, I want to get right into that if we could the uh, the whole COVID pandemic has shifted from a, a short term crisis uh, into a, a long term aspect of, of the whole business environment. Now that the economies have had time to adjust to this, uh, what are some of the lingering supply chain challenges that come with COVID, uh, especially now that it seems to be uh, the new normal for a lot of us? Uh, yes, uh, great
1: question. Uh, let me first start by saying uh, supply chains have, you know, there has been basic disruptions uh, uh, all the time. This is not something new. Uh, in fact, they are, I would say, common. And um, in the sense that uh, there are natural, basically, disasters, acts of war, IT outage, supplier failures, labor basic disputes, cyber attacks, you know, so on and so forth. So the supply chain folks are, uh, you know, pretty much familiar with all sorts of basically disruptions that could happen. And um, another point I like to make most supply chain networks are designed for efficiency, not resiliency. Uh, efficiency in the sense that, you know, lower cost, having no slack, uh, having no redundancy. Resiliency, uh, meaning how fast can you recover from a, basically, a problem, a disruption. Uh, so a lot of the folks that work in this area are very much attuned to focusing on efficiency. That's what has been expected. That's what a lot of us have been doing for many years. So that's why you you hear a lot about lean just-in-time systems. A lot of companies have been outsourcing, global sourcing, and there are complex and interconnected supply base. And also there has been a lot of supply consolidations. So a lot of those have impacted uh, the supply chain over the years. Uh, And the focus, like I said, has been on efficiency, not on resiliency. And my third point is you brought up COVID and certainly that's A disruption uh, that we've been dealing with for the past two years or so. Now, what's unique about that, uh, because as I mentioned, we've been dealing with all sorts of issues, but what's unique about COVID, I would say, are at least three things. Uh, First of all, the length of basic disruption is long and unpredictable. Even today, we don't know how much longer this is going to be, what type of, uh, you know, uh, variances are gonna come uh, you know uh, uh, you know be around and so on and so forth. The second thing that stands out about Covid is that it can simultaneously impact various geographic regions around the globe. So it's not like a storm that may hit just one specific area. Uh, it can happen anywhere and it's, and it has been happening all over the globe and, and so the impacts are, are much more severe and the third thing that in my mind it, it stands out is that it basically it affects both supply and basically demand uh, not just the supply uh, usually the supply is the one that's going to get hit but in the covid case we've seen demand for certain products really spike. uh, And that has made the supply chain more volatile. And of course, uh, those of you that know more about supply chain, I'm sure you've heard about the bulb effect, uh, which basically uh, causes the upstream supply chains to even uh, have larger spikes, you know? higher variation uh, and much harder to manage. Uh, So these problems have caused many challenges. As we all know, there has been material shortages, plant closures, shipping delays, port bottlenecks, export bans, panic buying by the consumers, and so on and so forth. Uh, So now to go back to your question, I would say COVID-19 pandemic is not a quick hit, basically disaster, uh, because it creates bottlenecks in every link of the supply chain. Uh, On top of that, we have moving you know, bottlenecks. Uh, So one time it may be the port, another time it could be, uh, you know, uh, something in the plant and so on and so forth. So we have these moving bottlenecks that are preventing the market from reaching equilibrium quickly. And of course, uh, you know, many of us are used to clicking and waiting for whatever we desire to arrive at our doorsteps. Uh, so being be kind of being spoiled by that and not all of a sudden we are experiencing the shock of not being able to, you know, buy things or, uh, you know, if you want to buy a new car, we realize we have to wait or if we or maybe we have to compromise on the color of the new car and so on and so forth, Uh, so it's been kind of shocking as far as that goes Um, and my read as far as what the situation is uh, could be summarized by saying some Asian choke points have cleared like I said we have moving basic bottlenecks. Uh, So just because they have been cleared now, it doesn't mean they're going to stay clear uh, in the future. But uh, uh, right now, I would say some Asian choke points have cleared, uh, but labor shortages and U.S. ports, uh, basically congestion, uh, you know, uh, exists. And I would say most experts do not expect a return to normal operations until maybe third quarter of uh, 2022. Uh, also cargo basically delays may continue as long as we have these variants or you know, as, as we've seen, it goes through waves and it uh, outbreaks uh, uh, in various parts of the globe. Uh, so I believe supply chain Disruptions and labor shortages will continue to pose risks to growth um, as concerns about COVID-19 variants basically persist around the globe. Uh, And in summary, the COVID variants keep moving the goalposts. And finally, uh, I saw a statistics um, in a, a McKinsey and Company report. Uh, there was a study on the financial impact of the pandemic on New York City's tourism industry. And what they found was so far, uh, the financial impact has been six times that of the September 11th attacks.
0: So, and it's ongoing. Yeah, definitely. Those are some sobering statistics for sure. Uh, Now, I want to touch on the labor shortage uh, issue that you uh, mentioned there, because uh, at Inbound Logistics, we've identified uh, labor shortages as a huge impact uh, throughout the industry as well. So uh, is that labor shortage primarily driven by COVID-19 or are there other factors that uh, we need to consider?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. I've been very curious about that you know, myself. And of course, I'm not a labor economist. But uh, before I go through that, there was another interesting McKinsey and Company study that was comparing non-parents with employed parents. <laughs> and the conclusion was employed parents are more likely to miss days of work Because they are experiencing symptoms of basically burnout. So, burnout is something that we keep hearing nowadays, particularly among women who are reporting higher than average rates of basically burnout, referred to as uh, some of you might have heard the great resignation. Uh, so, uh, bottom line, uh, the, the this has pushed down the labor or workforce participation rate. I would say, in summary, some underlying factors are directly related to the impact of the pandemic and maybe temporary, uh, but deeper structural shift could have a longer lasting impact, such as people quitting sooner than they expected and, uh, you know, retiring sooner and and things of that sort. Um, And finally, I would add that the job openings have risen beyond pre-COVID-19 levels as the economy has bounced back. Uh, However, the labor force is about 5 million smaller than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, so uh, I guess to answer your question, I, I think some of it hopefully will go away, but some of it is structural. And, and you know, later on we may be talking about what are some ways of dealing with that, such as automation, uh, artificial intelligence, and you know, using basically technology to take care of the shortage in a sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, with with all of that going on, do you expect um, industries then to pivot away from lean uh, JIT systems? Uh, And uh, are there other long-term trends that you see developing because of this?
1: Okay, like I mentioned earlier, the pandemic has certainly made supply and demand for many products extremely volatile um, and clearly shifting faster than the supply chains have been able to adjust. Um, now that comes on top of decades of very lean inventories kept by companies to lower their costs. And like I said, many supply chain uh, folks have been attuned to or have been expected to, uh, you know, keep redundancies low, keep costs low, having no slack in the system, optimizing things so that uh, there is not much slack in the system. Um, And, of course, a dollar that, for example, an electronics company spends to hold computer chips as a hedge against supply chain troubles is a dollar that it cannot use on something else, okay? So so there has been a lot of focus on keeping less inventories and, and, and trying to be lean and all that. And now on top of that, I would say there are monopolistic tendencies Uh, that explain at least some some of the shortages. As an example, uh, beef is uh, more scarce and prices are high, but this is mainly because meat packers have consolidated and eliminated capacity to essentially increase prices and make themselves more profitable. So there are all sorts of choke points throughout the supply chain. Um, and the, there's a variety of reasons for that, two of which we just talked about. So I would conclude by saying the key is mitigating supply chain basically disruptions during major emergencies without incurring exorbitant costs. So in other words, everything comes at a cost Uh, In the past, we haven't been willing to uh, have any extra costs. We've been trying to minimize the costs as much as possible. Now we are to a point where, well, maybe there should be some slack in the systems. Maybe we should back away from some of the just-in-time or lean uh, strategies, at least in certain parts, in certain parts of the supply chain, not all over. But we got to be also be careful of not increasing the cost too much. So I think there may be some smart ways of handling this uh, so that you have some slack in critical, uh, you know, choke point areas. But at the same time, your
0: costs
1: are not going to skyrocket.
0: Yeah, let's uh, continue that uh, thread then, if you, if you can, Professor Uh increased demand signals from consumers, uh, a, a, different, uh, a different way uh, that uh, consumers are expecting to be uh, serviced in these times, uh, labor shortages, uh, capacity shortages, all of that is now thrown into the mix. What are some other strategies that firms can employ then to better deal with and, and position themselves in this current highly volatile environment? Yes. Um, So, uh,
1: you know, I would say CEOs uh, are facing very tough operational obstacles. Um, which includes some of the things that you mentioned uh, finding you know enough workers dealing with price increases or inflation we just got an inflation number today that that uh, in indicates the you know the high inflation is basically continuing uh, prices for basic commodities including steel semiconductors natural gas have risen, uh, so have uh, container shipping costs have increased significantly. So the recommendations or strategies to to follow, uh, I have a few of them here I can share. Uh, Before I go through them though, I want to again emphasize that there are no free lunches. So in other words, uh, all of these will require some resources, all of these is going to cost some, uh, but most of them are basically focusing on making the supply chain more resilient without breaking the bank. Okay. Uh, So having said that, uh, I would say one uh, strategy that stands out would be mapping and monitoring supply network. Uh, So identifying the location of tier one and tier two suppliers, examining inbound and outbound product flows, as some companies may even want to go to tier 3 but as i will mention later on uh, this is a tall order uh, i will mention some numbers in, in just a minute uh, um, you know the, uh, another part of mapping and monitoring supply network would be monitor suppliers and qualify alternative suppliers for at least mission critical parts not all parts but uh, for mission critical parts, because we just don't have enough time and resources to certainly do it for all parts. Now, just to mention how difficult this can be, I have two examples here. One is for uh, auto manufacturers. Uh, There was a study showing on average auto manufacturers have 250 tier one suppliers. Okay. However, when you go to tier two um, uh, or, or three, a- across all tiers, they have 18,000 suppliers. So, so you're talking about very large numbers here. Or aeros- aerospace you know, manufacturing, uh, on average, they have about 200 tier one suppliers. However, they have 12,000 across all tiers. So uh, suggesting to map and monitor supply network uh, does require some resources. And that's why I mentioned, we want to do this for mission critical parts, but not all parts. Okay. Otherwise, it, it just won't be feasible. So that's one solution. Another solution is something that we've been trying to avoid for for decades. And that is build redundancy in the supply chain. Is that going to cost? Obviously it does. And more importantly than that, redundancy is counterintuitive for most supply chain professionals, Um, uh, because that's what we've been trying to avoid for for, many, many years. So somehow we need to change the incentives on them so they are willing to build redundancy. So somehow we're gonna have to uh, come up with basically metrics that says, well, you wanna be efficient, but you also wanna be resilient. So if something uh, happens in the supply chain, you run into you know, trouble, you can recover that from, from that quickly. Um, another way to build redundancy, and I've done this for several companies and uh, it's been very successful, is strategic positioning of safety stocks in a supply chain. Uh, When I say strategic positioning of safety stocks, again, I am talking about mapping the supply chain and finding out where is it cheapest, or more advantageous to keep some extra inventory, not all over the place, because obviously that would would, uh, uh, increase the cost significantly and no one wants that, Uh, but there are some smart ways of adding safety stocks in uh, critical parts of the supply chain without breaking the bank. Okay, so those are two examples of building redundancy in the supply chain. The third, you know, strategy would be taking a holistic view of inventory to ensure global optimization. A lot of times, uh, a company is, you know, has various uh, groups. Uh, very, you know, there's, you know, marketing, there's supply chain, there is operations, there is, you know, finance, so on and so forth. So each of these functions tend to uh, behave uh, the way their incentives are set up. And because of that, there could be misalignments. So for example, uh, manufacturing may say, well, uh, I'm gonna ship this inventory out of here because I have a quota that's been imposed on me. Uh, And then they're gonna ship it to the warehouse and the warehouse folks are gonna be upset by that because manufacturing overshipped and so on and so forth, then they're gonna miss their quotas. So a lot of gaming goes on, unfortunately, in most organizations, at least some gaming goes on on. Uh, so somehow, if we could take a holistic view of inventory to ensure global optimization, not local optimization, not sub-optimizing uh, just our own functions or areas. Um, so um, in order to do this, we need to increase alignment by having the right incentives. We need transparency and coordination. OK, because that is something that's going to help the entire system and not just, uh, you know, meeting the goals of individual uh, functions. The fourth suggestion or strategy would be clearly diversify supply base and build better relationship with those suppliers. Again, easy to say, and not as easy to do, and certainly requires uh, more resources. So ideally, we want to have global suppliers from multiple regions. So if we want to be global, at least we have it from multiple regions, ideally with at least one based in the home country to protect against border closures, for example. So again, it depends on the product, it depends on the industry, but certainly that is something we want to be thinking about. Uh, the fifth one, I have a total of six, so I'm almost done. Uh, the fifth one would be at uh, achieve network agility. So setting up alternative manufacturing sites and assembly nodes. Uh, so If this, then that. Have all these contingencies uh, in case something happens and we can react to it quickly. Uh, And my last suggestion, which I know a lot of companies are following would be utilizing technology solutions to improve supply chain resiliency at low costs. So many companies are seeing digitization, artificial intelligence, and automation as top drivers of productivity and profitability in the coming years. Um, Lastly, I would say you may ask, well, do you know a company that has done this? Because your question goes back to What strategies can firm employ to better deal with and position themselves in the current environment? And of course, it depends on the company, it depends on the industry and all that. But if you want me to provide one example of a company who actually did that because of a problem they faced about 10 years ago, it would be Toyota. Toyota has, I would say, pursued many of the strategies I mentioned, maybe not all, but many as it became more risk averse to supply disruptions after the 2011 tsunami. Okay, so they ended up in a bad situation uh, at that time and they learned from it and they said, well, we're not going to be quite as lean. We're going to have some redundancy being in group. We're going to know more about where the suppliers are, uh, map them, monitor them, you know, so on and so forth. We're going to diversify our supply base. Uh, we're going to take a more holistic view of inventory and so on and so forth. So I would say at least one success story is Toyota, again, I'm not saying they don't have any issues now, but but they, they have taken care of some of those issues by proactively becoming more risk averse because of their bad experience in 2011. So just the bottom line would be there is a need to improve supply chain resiliency. But again, I will emphasize without incurring a, exorbitant costs because you know there's many solutions that are very costly and companies are simply not going to do it uh, because of the high cost or if they do it it's going to be for a very short period of time Uh, so striking a balance between costs and resiliency is the key challenge here
0: So many uh, interesting concepts uh, in that response. Now, have you, uh, Professor, been able to use or relate those concepts uh, in your instruction there at Clarkson?
1: Yes, I would say it's not just me, but the entire faculty here. Uh, We do have a Master of Science uh, program in supply chain management. Uh, We also obviously have an undergraduate program and all that. But I think for your audience, probably the most appropriate one to talk about is the Master of Science program in supply chain management, which is rather new, only a a couple of years old Um, now. The way that kind of started is um, we have been a top ranked program in the nation in supply chain management. Uh, According to US News and World Report, we've been a top 20 program for 17 years. Uh, Supply chain has always been a core competency of the Ray School, business school uh, at Clarkson. Um, For example, at most Business schools, the largest majors tend to be uh, accounting, finance, you know, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, at Clarkson, the largest major in the school is, you know, supply chain. So we 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 are kind of known as a supply chain uh, school. Uh, so we decided to design a program that needs the, uh, you know, that uh, meets the needs of working professionals uh, who plan and manage uh, complex supply chains. Um, One thing that stands out about our program is the systems approach to supply chain management. So we have this holistic view of attempting to optimize the entire system and not sub-optimize pieces. And many supply chain programs at other colleges, not all, but many of them are much more focused. So for example, they call it a supply chain program, but all courses are, or most courses are in logistics or in operations, in optimization. So they're focused on certain aspects of it. At Clarkson, we take a holistic approach. Uh, Folks that are teaching these classes come uh, from various basic backgrounds. So some of them are industrial engineers or operations management folks that are similar to me. Others come from information systems, marketing, organizational behavior. Um, you know, for example, they teach the negotiations, partnership management. You know, so on and so forth. So we we draw from various uh, groups in the school and bring their talent to the supply chain program because our supply chain program is a. a is a systems view or what we call contact to cash from the time customer, uh, uh, yes, customers uh, um, contact us with a requirement or a need. Uh, and then of course we, we may be doing sourcing, we may be doing manufacturing, logistics, transportation, you know, customer service. And finally we collect money from them. So contact to cash from the time they contact us with a requirement until we do what we are supposed to do uh, and we collect the money from them. So it's very much a systems approach program. Um, we cover a variety of critical topics uh, that are uh, relevant in uh, you know, nowadays, uh, such as supply chain risk and resiliency, data analytics, Uh, supply management sourcing, supply chain modeling, uh, and then some softer topics such as negotiations and relationship management, supply chain ethics, game theory that is taught by uh, an economist uh, at our school, uh, process improvement, quality and process improvement, and logistics and transportation. So we draw from at least of four groups of faculty uh, to be able to have a program like this. Um, We know that's what industry is looking for. Um, Now, everybody else, of course, knows that too. Uh, Why is it that we can do it and some others can't do it? I would say it's because of our small size, Uh, because we don't have departments, uh, there is less, There's a lot more cooperation between various groups. So it's easier for us to follow a model like this than a very large school that has dozens of faculty in each of the areas that I just basically mentioned. Um, another thing about the program is that it's very integrated and hands-on and contains a lot of hands-on learning opportunities, uh, particularly including synchronous, learning components in every single class. So every class is uh, capped at a maximum of 20 students because we want to be very interactive. And we have actually live sessions. So you know that there are things that are posted on internet. uh, and, you know, lectures are posted uh, so, you know, students can, can do their work and, and uh, at, at their own time, uh, whenever they have the opportunity to do so. But once a week, we have at least a, a class of hour, hour and a half, which is live. And we get to discuss things, argue about things, uh, go over articles, go over cases, go over homework, and so on and so forth. So it's much more uh, uh, labor intensive on the part of the faculty, but there's a lot of value in that where it's, it's not just online. Having said all that, there is no uh, uh, there is no requirement for folks to come on campus, uh, so our uh, synchronous sessions are on Zoom, for example, uh, so we get the value of interaction without inconveniencing people to come on campus, and it's a very flexible program in the sense that um, they um, you can start or students can start. Uh, four uh, four start terms per year, uh, so there's four times in a year you could start. There's four quarters, uh, and we also have rolling admissions, so there's not just one time where you need to be admitted.
0: Yeah, excellent. And uh, I I think that's uh, all important information uh, because at Inbound Logistics, we we don't just recognize the shortages in the talent that's in the industry right now, but uh, also good people coming into the industry uh, from schools such as Clarkson. So um, there's definitely value uh, to be found there. So, uh, Professor, tell our audience then where they can go to get more information about Clarkson University's supply chain program.
1: Uh, sure. I have a URL that I can share. Uh, that's Clarkson, C-L-A-R-K-S-O-N dot E-D-U clarkson.edu forward slash SCM, which stands for Supply Chain Management. So clarkson.edu forward slash SCM.
0: Excellent. And I will place that link in the show notes. So you can one click to that link directly. Uh, Professor Mahmoudi, thank you so much for all of that great information. Uh, Best of luck to Clarkson. Best of luck to you. And uh, let's hope that we're through this sooner rather than later. Stay safe, sir. Thanks for having me. Inbound Logistics Magazine is the information leader in supply chain and logistics management. Start your free print and digital subscription today by visiting bit.ly slash get il. That's bit.ly slash get underscore il and stay ahead of the 3PL game.